You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 2, 4 through 25. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had sprung up yet. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For, the, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he could call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not, a, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this, is the la this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. I would like to start out with a, um, a statement that shouldn't be controversial, but is very much controversial. All right, you ready for this? Hold on to your pews. 
It's good to be a man. It's good to be a man. If you are a biological male, if you have XY chromosomes, it is good to be a man. There's a unique glory to maleness. There's a unique glory to the characteristics, the, the calling of maleness. Now, before you go and accuse me of being sexist or preferential, the exact same statement is true of women. It is good to be a woman. Yeah, the guy should be the one saying amen, right? Yes, woman, praise God. Both statements to say it is good to be a man and good to be a woman are simultaneously true. One statement does not negate the other. Neither femaleness nor maleness is to be loathed or envied. Rather, God's design of gender should be celebrated to be rejoiced in because gender is a glorious gift from God meant to be received with gladness. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. As we make our way through our series called Origins, studying the foundations of the world, the, the, the foundational realities of our existence, of, of who God is, of who we are, of what this world is about, today's topic brings us to gender. Now, as I make that statement, the reason why it's a controversial statement, if, if you love the Bible, if you love it, it shouldn't be controversial at all, but it's very much a controversial statement to our culture. Our culture, society does not have, seem to have this shared sentiment of the beauty of the glory of maleness and femaleness. And we see this between the so-called gender wars, this hostility between men and women. You see this in misogyny and modern feminism, this, this rivalry, this attack. You see this in the new movement of transgenderism, where gender is not often see, seen as a glorious thing. In fact, it's usually seen as a liability or an unfortunate reality. Now, if this is the way that you view gender, downstream of that, you'll, you'll have one of two things. You'll either have um, sexism, this, this superiority, this fight, this rivalry between men and women, who's the best? It'll create this combative and competitive relationship between the sexes where it very much feels like we're pitted against one another. Or, on the other hand, it will promote androgyny. The, the elimination of any kind of gender-defining traits or, or framework and sort of blur them all together. Well, in fact, well, there's gonna be a lot of times where I'm gonna be tempted to jump off the tracks today, but I'm gonna stay to it, okay? So stop, that's the first time I've stopped myself. I'm gonna stay to it. So uh, androgyny is the temptation to, to blur gender, to, to, to be anti-gender, to, to remove any sort of construct of gender, and, and one of the, the assertions of this mentality is that gender is malleable, right? If you can blend gender, then gender is malleable, it's disposable, and it's a social construct. construct. But as we read the first pages of the Bible, one of the first things that becomes 
obvious to us is that gender is not a social construct. Gender is God's idea and God only has good ideas. So gender is God's very good idea. It's among the first things that we learn about humanity. If you go, uh, I'll just read it for you here. In Genesis 1, 27, as he's creating man in day six, God says, uh, it, it makes a statement. So God created man, that means humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Gender is a foundational human reality. You cannot escape it. Everyone is gendered, either male or female, as part of the Imago Dei, being made in the image of God. One of the ways that Satan tries to rob God of his glory is by attacking the engendered Imago Dei by saying to us, to be male is bad, to be female is bad, um, let's blend it, let's get rid of the framework. And, and it'll work itself out either pitting man against woman or trying to destroy or blur gender. And as you look out into our society right now, both of those things are happening with ferocity in mainstream culture. You see these ideas, ideologies being pushed upon people that gender is bad. Now, my goal this morning um, is not to dismantle all of the lies that are currently in circulation about gender. There's, there's just simply too much nonsense to try, try to disassemble. I don't have enough time. But what I want to do today is win you with beauty. What I want to do today is present to you gender as God has created it, that's radiating, that's beaming with glory and beauty. And I want to do that by unpacking five ways that gender is a glorious gift from God to celebrate. We'll do that by camping out in Genesis chapter 2. Now, if, if you are familiar with the structure of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, it goes through days 1 through 7 of God's creative work. On day six is the day where creatures and, and at the apex of creation is humanity. God on day six creates man and woman. Now, what happens here in Genesis 2, it looks like it's a completely contrary creation account, but this is not the case. Actually, what Genesis chapter 2 tells us is what's going on in, Genesis, or in, in day six that we see in Genesis chapter 1. And so let us turn there together. Genesis chapter 2. Now, one of the things that happens when we talk about gender, um, oftentimes, the focus is primarily placed on the differences between men and women, which there are substantial, very real differences between men and women. Now, you might recall, I remember growing up as a kid, my mom had a book on her nightstand called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From, from Venus. And as an elementary-aged guy, uh, young boy, it was very confusing to me because for a long time I had some suspicion that I was perhaps a Martian. I didn't quite grab <laughs> the framework of that. But uh, and I've not read the book, to, to, to be fair, but, but I do know enough about the book to say that, that the, the theme of this book is that men and women are so different that they are so vastly different that they might as well be from different planets. That the way that they operate, the way that they think, the way that they interact is, is, is alien to one another. 
But to talk biblically about gender means that we do not start with differences, rather we start with the things that are shared. We, we, share, we start with the things that we have in common. And so let me point out to you the first glory of gender that is revealed in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It's when just, just read that passage, Genesis 27. So God created man, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The glory that is revealed in mankind is that the imago Dei, the image of God, to be an image bearer is true of both men and women. We share in the image of God. This is the most important, most profound thing that is true about you as a human. This means that we are, here's a big word, we are ontologically the same. That means that we share the same nature and have the same essence of being. Right, we're not two separate creatures. In fact, we see this right away in verses, uh, we see this in verse chapter two, verse 20 and 21, where Adam is, is the, the animals are paraded before God, or before Adam, God parades these animals before Adam and he's naming them off and he realizes that none of them are compatible to him. He's got like the rhinoceros and the ostrich and you know, birds. And he sees that none of them are helpers fit for him. They're not, there's no counterparts. And then God, he creates Eve. So Adam says there's no helper for him. There's no, no helper. There's no person that shares the same relational, physical, uh, intellectual, social compatibilities until God creates woman from man. Eve comes along. And, and the first documented uh, human poetry we see in, in verse 23 where, where, where God presents the woman to man and he says, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Adam realizes right here, the moment he sees her, instantaneously knows that Eve is the same creature with different features. They are both sharing in the image of God, yet there is diversity. And because they are sharing in the image of God, men and women are both equal in dignity, value, and worth since day one. This is the creational reality. Men and women are equal in dignity, value, and worth since, well, technically day six, but the, you know, day six of creation. But since the beginning of mankind, equal in dignity, value, and worth. There is no ontological superiority based on chromosomes. So that's the first glory of gender, that we share the same essence. The second glory of gender we see in verse 26 through 28, same, same passage in chapter one, is that men and women share the same vocation. God says in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. This cultural mandate, as it's called, is not exclusively for men. 
Rather, it's for both men and women. They share the same vocation. Voca, the word voca means calling. To be called means that, that you have been assigned a task. You, you've, you've been given a mission. So men and women share this vocation of, of exercising dominion over the earth, of filling it, of subduing it. Now, the reality that we find out as you read through chapter two is, is that Adam in and of himself is incapable of fulfilling the wholeness of this vocation by himself. This is why for the first time in the creation account that we see where God sees man is alone and he says, it is not good that man be alone. Why is it not good? Well, because God assigned him a task that he cannot do by himself. In order to fulfill the mission, in order to fulfill the vocation, there's a necessity for a complementary relationship that men and women together create something that is more beautiful than apart from one another. So we see God giving them shared vocation. Now, what happens when you share a mission? When there's a shared mission, it creates fertile ground for companionship. Now, marriage is one of the obvious places. When, when, when you have a, a shared goal, a shared vision for your household with your spouse, and you put yourself to it, and we're aiming for this, and we're working for this, it, it fosters, it breeds companionship. But marriage isn't the only place where this is true. Look to sports teams, right? A, a football team that has their eyes set on the prize of that championship. They're going to build a sense of companionship, of, of camaraderie as they pursue, or even soldiers, the brotherhood that comes from, we've shared the same mission, we're in this together, we're and you see the same thing happening as men and women are brought together. They're given a same mission, a shared mission, and it creates fertile ground for companionship, for team. Now this is a piece of the Imago Dei because God is a God who exists in relationship. One God and three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally together in fellowship with one another. God has created us in his image for, with the capacity of relationships to, to exist in community, not to be an isolated creature like, like a mountain lion, but to be a, a relational creature that does life together with fellow image bearers who are also different. And so as we see both men and women working toward the same goal, sharing the same vocation, this brings glory to God. This is, this is the glory of God in gender of a shared mission. Now these shared realities must undergird everything about how men and women interact. Yet, there is gender asymmetry. That men and women are equal, but they are not the same. Men and women are not interchangeable as if you can plug and play anywhere or anyone where you want them to be. Though we've been tasked with the same mission, the same vocation, there are unique roles and responsibilities delegated specific to one's gender. Now, all of these, all of these things that we're going to unpack here, there's three more, 
are rooted in the pre-fall. So before sin enters the world, before there is any corruption of maleness or femaleness, the creational order stands and deems God, when he finishes on, on day six and says it is very good, he's speaking about the created order of male and female as well as the rest of creation. These, these differences are rooted in the pre-fall created order, which Jesus and the apostles both appeal to throughout the New Testament, which gives us a kind of theology of gender. It helps us understand who we are as embodied or engendered people. So let me first point out, this is, I believe this is point number three. The third area of, of the glory of gender and the first area of gender asymmetry is that men and women have complementary roles in this mission. That men and women have roles that are unique to their gender in order to fulfill the calling, the cultural mandate to fill the earth, to subdue it, to exercise dominion. And we see this in how men and women are oriented toward the world differently. They're oriented toward each other differently. And this is rooted in the way that God has created man and woman. Now, the first thing that we see Genesis chapter seven, or Genesis chapter two, verse seven, is when God is creating man, God scoops up dirt from the ground, he forms it. That Adam comes from the dirt and God breathes into his nostrils and gives him life. And then as we move on, we see that, that God, after he breathed into man, God created what we know as Eden. It's like a... a, a a garden temple, a sanctuary for Adam to live in, to, to, um, to occupy. And so God places Adam in the garden. He forms him from the ground and then places him in the garden. And then we see um, in verse eight, and, 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 uh, or vor, verse eight, he planted the garden and there he put man whom he had formed. So here, verse seven and eight tells us Adam's formed from the ground. God creates a place, a dwelling place for Adam. He puts him in there and Adam is in Eden alone. Now, what we see about women and how, how woman is formed is, is different from man. Eve, we're told, was made from the rib of Adam. In verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. This is after he said, it's not good that man should be alone. And while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed his place with flesh. And, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So he, here are some really important differences. God formed Adam from the ground, breathed life into him, placed him in the garden. He gave him a place. With, with woman, he made her from the side of man he gave her life and then gave her to the man. She, she didn't present, or God didn't present her to Eden. God presented her to the man. Very important differences here that show us how men and women are oriented differently. Man is made from the ground for the ground. His, his task is to subdue the earth, to tend what God had created. That's why he appointed him in Eden to take care of the garden. 
And with women, she is made from the man for the man. In fact, this is something that the Apostle Paul speaks of back in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9. He says, For man was not made from the woman, but woman from the man. So there, he's from the ground, she's from the man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for the man. So here we see this from and for, from and for. It's only when men and women come together. This is the beauty of the complementary relationship of gender. Only when men and women come together can they fulfill God's work that he had appointed them to. Now this, this ought to stoke our appreciation for the opposite sex. To say, I cannot do what God has called me to do without your help. It's the beauty, the glory of complementary relationships, the origins, the orientation. Now, the fourth glory of gender is rooted in the created order specifically. So we talked about creational origins a minute ago. Now, it's talking about the created order that man came first. Man came first, then comes woman. Now, there is a temptation that when we hear this, we revert to one of two really immature ways of thinking about gender. One is, is the Ricky Bobby effect that says, if you ain't first, you last, right? The guys have this, well, we were made first, so God must like us more, right? No, that's not helpful. <laughs> the other one, ladies, is, is based on the old childhood mantra, first is the worst, second is the best, Right? God tried with man on the first try and he didn't get it right, so he had to try to do it again. And then he got woman and then he was happy, right? <laughs> now, I want to take you back to the ontological value. Being made first or second doesn't say anything about who is more valuable, who is uh, inferior or superior in dignity, value, and worth. It says nothing about that. And while there is no ontological superiority, man does have seniority over women. And with this creational seniority comes two things, two really important big categories. One is authority, and two is responsibility. Now, now let me show you here. Men were made, men were made to lead initiate and take responsibility for the benefit of all people. Now, let me show you here in the creational story where we see man taking, or man delegated authority first. The first place where we see authority given to man that is different than authority given to women is that Adam was tasked with naming the creatures. Now, when you name your child, that is an act of parental authority. You have the right to call your children. God has given you the parental authority to call your children whatever you want to call them. And hopefully you don't give them a bad name. But that is an authority that is given from God. And we see God giving Adam the responsibility, the authority to name the creatures that are walked before him. And then we see authority in the fact that Adam is the one who gets to name Eve. 
We see this happen twice, actually. In, in that, that poem that he gushes over Eve, he says, she shall be called woman. He's, he's naming her. God has given him authority, creational authority over her to name her because she was taken out of man. So we see this element of authority that's, that, that's given through the creational order, but there's also a responsibility that comes with it. The responsibility that comes to maleness, to Adam, is that he is the only one who is instructed about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam is the only one that God speaks to directly and says, Adam, listen, I've got a job. You need to protect yourself and everybody else from eating from this tree. He has a responsibility to protect, to, to maintain and, and to see to the flourishing of those who are around him. This is the, the masculine responsibility. And so you can say the fourth glory of gender is that there is female flourishing through male headship. Female flourishing through male headship. Now in our women power era, this may not seem like glory. Right? There's something in your minds that, that just initial reaction to this that says, no way, this can't, this is not glorious, this is bad. We, we need to move toward a, a balanced and equal, uh, an egalitarian view of the world, of gender. This may not seem like a glory to see male headship and female flourishing as a product, but it is. Because Adam, Adam gets tasked with this, it's sort of a burden, right? The authority and responsibility is not a easy breezy, you know, I'm just gonna point and demand and you know, do that kind of a thing. There's a weight that is placed on Adam's shoulders that Eve doesn't have to carry. This is why men are given broad shoulders. Physically speaking, men have broader shoulders than women. So physically they can carry more load, but also emotionally, relationally, even as, as far as vocationally, carrying a larger load on their shoulders so that the women don't have to do that. Now this doesn't downplay her role in the equation, right? We're going back to the complementary nature of we're both in this mission together. We, have, we each play vital roles, she is just as essential as Adam, but Adam is given responsibility and authority. Now, this is not a isolated uh, idea. This is not an isolated concept. Because of God's creational order, which Jesus and the apostles all oftentimes refer back to, when Jesus is asked about marriage, where does he go back to? He goes back to Genesis 2, Genesis 1. He goes back to the creational reality, not a cultural construct. Well, the apostle Paul does the same thing in Ephesians 5 as he's talking about marriage, seeing this dynamic of authority and responsibility we call male headship. And we'll talk about this more next week as we get into to marriage. But Ephesians 5, uh, 22 through 20, 23 says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and he himself is its savior. The apostle Paul uses the created order to go back to 
Here's, here's the norm for marriage. The same thing is also presented in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And this time, Paul is talking about the dynamics, gender dynamics within the church. He says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And if you keep going on to 1 Timothy chapter 3, it gets into the qualifications for elders, for pastors, which are it's an office that is reserved specifically for men, the men who lead the church, who bear the authority and responsibility to see to the flourishing of others. Now, this has nothing to do with talent or skill, right? God doesn't choose men to do this because they're gonna be better at it. I know that there are women who are better communicators, better preachers than there are men preachers some places, I know that there are women who might have more of a pastoral bent and um, an inclination to shepherding and tending to a flock than some males do. But God does not divvy, uh, uh, divvy out these responsibilities, these authorities based on merit, but based on the creational order. This is God's design for gender. This is how gender works itself out into different spheres of life. And listen, when this is honored, when we see these parameters placed around men and women of masculinity and femininity, when these things are observed and honored, it leads to human flourishing. When you try to destroy the authority, the responsibility, the shared vocation, the unique uh, responsibilities or the unique uh, emphasis for the vocation. You, you start to pick away at human flourishing. You, you, you um, destroy the foundation for it. In fact, I would say that, that one of the underlying causes that has caused so much Discord in our society goes back to this reality that God created men and women in his image, but made them different. When we reject gender, we reject God's created order. When we reject God's created order, we reject God. And if we reject God, we reject the gospel. Let me show you too often, as, as we lay out, so the, the beauty of gender is that when, when we acknowledge the sameness and the differences, things build and build and build and glory and glory and glory. And you see this, this love for one another and this stepping into the things that God has created us for. But too often, men abdicate their authority and responsibility. Too often, men step back out of laziness and let women step into the roles that God has created for him to handle. And too often, we have women who are too eager to grab after that authority. And as this happens, when you... You, there's this, this stepping on each other's toes of gender. 
that undermines and destroys the glorious dynamics of gender that God created. And when the gender relationship is fractured, it hurts everyone. See, we've all been either guilty of or affected by refusing the created order, the created norms of our gender. We've listened maybe, we've maybe, we've listened to the culture and, and it's easy, especially for young, young boys right now to be ashamed that God has made them a boy. When these lines of gender are blurred, when the rivalry of gender ensues, instead of harmony and productivity, which God had in mind when he created men and women, we get hostility and animosity. Now, when you look at this world, it's tempting, you, you open up, you open up your news app or whatever it is you get your news and you can, it's like your, your page is bombarded with all of the, whether it's like feminism or misogyny or, or transgender ideology, you're, you're bombarded with all kinds of stuff and it, you look at it, it's like, man, things are jacked up. Things are messed up in this world. And if we get something that's as foundational as men and women messed up, how is there any hope for us? How, how will we ever get to a place of thriving and flourishing? Grace abounds. God's grace towards sinners abounds. And God's grace restores and enhances our created nature. What God had intended for humans to be, the gospel of Jesus Christ brings us to that place. It forgives us of our sins. It washes us clean and then postures us and presents us in a way that we can live into that reality. Christ Jesus came to restore all of creation back to glory, even gender. When the Apostle Paul talks in Galatians 3, 28, where he says there's, there's not, neither Jew nor Gentile, um, he, one of the pieces that he says there's neither female nor male. There's neither male nor female. Now, what this means is, is that um, it's not that gender is abolished as some might argue for. That's not the case. Gender is not abolished. What's abolished is the hostility towards Gender. In fact, gender is an essential piece of the gospel message. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ is an engendered gospel because here we have Jesus put on flesh, born of a virgin woman, fully God and fully man. Jesus is a male and as Jesus grows, for the first time since the, the first days of Adam, he does everything God created a man to do. Jesus assumes responsibility for God's people. 
He sees their brokenness and and he goes to the cross to pay the price for the sin and rebellion of man. See, all the times where we push away from gender and pushing away from the creator, we're pushing away from God. Jesus came to take on the sins of humanity, both men and women, to atone them and to make things right, to be reconciled to God. Jesus takes responsibility as the true and better Adam. And we also see that Jesus exercises authority throughout all the gospel accounts over demons, over over sickness, over creation. You see the authority of Jesus embodied in himself. And then at the Great Commission, which is is like a, a counterpart to the cultural mandate, the whole fill the earth, subdue it, exercise dominion. Well, the way that you do this through the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus, the man, when when Jesus is presented before Pilate. Pilate says, behold the man. Now, what what that was meant to be was was irony and mockery, but what he was saying was probably the most true thing that Pilate had said that day, that Jesus was truly the man, the archetypal man who takes responsibility and authority and uses it for the flourishing of other people. See, Jesus presents himself, Ephesians 5, as as the groom, the bridegroom, who who takes on responsibility for the bride, the church. And he lays down his life for her. This is how grace restores nature. Jesus is working to make all things right again. And when you look at this picture of of Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride, what you see is something glorious. You see the masculine characteristics of Christ, and you see the feminine characteristics represented in the church, that she submits to him and follows him, and she flourishes. Now, as the church does this, we're told that Jesus makes her radiant and beautiful, purifies her, ironing out the wrinkles, makes her beam with glory and radiance. But here's the thing. This this is really important. She's not, the church is not beaming with her own glory. It's not a manufactured kind of glory that the church sort of like musters up and like, dang, I look pretty today. No, no, no. It's, it's a glory that is derivative of her savior. See, this is the fifth glory of gender. That as the church becomes the glory of God, Christ is the glory of God, the church becomes the glory of God. Or in other words, you can say the church becomes the glory of glory. If Christ is the glory of God and the church is becoming glorious and radiant, it is not her glory, but the glory of glory that is put on her. Interestingly, Paul says that the same thing is true of men and women in 1 Corinthians eleven seven. 7. It says, since he, man, is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, this is a a statement that sometimes it's hard to wrap your mind around to say that that man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. It it might seem like a um, a diminishing, like a, um, 
women's glory is downstream from man's glory in a negative way, but that can't be the case. Women's glory is upstream. It's, it's the glory of glory. It's the most supreme glory that's being radiated. Now, let me, let me illustrate in two ways. One for the dudes, one for the ladies. First, the glory of glory. What does that mean? The glory of glory is what a ribeye is to beef, right? The best cut of beef you can get is a ribeye. That is, and all meat is good. Like we all like hamburgers. We all like them, them uh, big old briskets. You, it's all good. It's all glorious. But the ribeye is the glory of glory. It's the best part of something that is glorious. Now for the ladies. The glory of glory is what the blossom is to the magnolia. A beautiful plant. The leaves, colors, I mean, it's just, it's, itself is a beautiful plant. But then the crown of glory is the blossom. That's what it means to be the glory of glory. When you have this mentality to see man as the glory of God and women as the glory of man, it's not this competitive thing of who's more glorious. It's this rejoicing thing to say it's all glorious. That God is a glorious God and he creates glorious things and gender is one of those things that God has made and it's glorious. But it's only when we understand this when we look at the Bible and see what God has said to us of the creational order and what the apostles and Jesus says uh, later on in the New Testament to affirm that very thing, that enables us to see that gender is in fact a glorious gift from God to be received with gladness. That Christ has come. Now listen, there are a lot of bad men in the world. There are a lot of bad women in the world. There's a lot of ways where gender can go wrong, but Jesus has come to redeem it. And so by God's grace, clinging to the grace of God, we see that this is one of the things that God restores. God restores gender. And when gender is restored, human flourishing ensues. But the only way that we can live into this is by tapping into the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to both receive the gift, to rejoice in the gift, and then to live out of the gift. And as we do this, by God's grace, glory abounds in our home, in our church, and in our city. All to the praise of God's glory and his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your wisdom, you have made men and women. And while we have done a, a very good job of spoiling your very good gift, you, you work to redeem and restore all things back to yourself. We ask, Lord, that as men and women, you would help us to live into the ways that you have de designed us to live. That there would not um, be hostility towards the opposite sex. That there would not be resentment. That there would not be these things that divide us or a competition or even the temptation of, of pursuing androgyny but receive the glorious gift of gender. And as we live this out, would you be magnified, your name be magnified and glory abound. And would your people rejoice in your kindness and your wisdom. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.